0: Thank you for downloading this episode of Software Gone Wild, a podcast focused on everything software-defined. To get more episodes and explore other SDN and network automation resources, visit sdn.ipspace.net.
1: Welcome to another software-defined episode of Software Gone Wild. You might remember that in our early days, we actually spent some time on this thingy called SDN, and then we just stopped because, you know, it doesn't make sense. They're reinventing old stuff and claiming it works and then doing proofs of concept with, as David would say, specially crafted environment that has to be in the Goldilocks zone so all the dependencies are nicely met and so on. Anyway, there are people who still haven't given up, and one of them is one of our not-so-very-regular co-hosts, Nick Braglio. Hi, Nick. Nice to have you back after I don't know how long
0: time. It's been a little while. Thank you. Good to be back.
1: And as always, we have David G. and Christopher Young, to keep me honest. Hi, David. Hi, Chris. Hey. Hey. So without wasting any more time, Nick, you sent me an email quite a while ago saying you did SDN at supercomputing 2018. And I know that we did a podcast on a similar topic ages ago when you were doing SDN 0.1 at supercomputing, what was it, 2015?
0: Yeah, I believe it was 15.
1: Oh, really? (laughs) I was just guessing.
0: It was 15 or 16. They all sort of blur together after a while. Yeah, I know how that works. I'm too old for that.
1: (laughs) Anyway, because I know that no one will stop right now and
0: go back and listen to the old podcast, what is this supercomputing thingy? So the supercomputing conference is an international conference that happens every year where supercomputing resources get displayed and experiments happen. And it's a fairly big affair. It happens typically in a different place every year, although there's been a rotating Set of cities just due to fiber availability. And one of the big things that we do there is we bring in just sort of a ludicrous amount of bandwidth to these facilities on, you know, distinct fiber providers. And then we light our own optical systems and stuff to power this, you know, terabit plus set of waves that we throw scientific data over and experimental data. But a big part of that is building out a significant network that has to essentially be a production network for the attendees of the show, which includes laying fiber in the in the facility, lighting up either optical or ethernet, depending on the year the, the architecture changes, wireless systems. It's essentially building out what at one point, and probably still is actually, described as the fastest network in the world that exists for only like two weeks.
1: So you have more bandwidth in there than some of the reasonably large cloud providers, right?
0: Yes, we have more bandwidth in there than many small countries have.
1: Wow. And you're brave enough to bring SDN to that?
0: Well, that's sort of been my role in the few years is to sort of be the heretic and to say, I want to take these technologies that are experimental and or sort of not necessarily the standard and put them through the paces to see if they actually do work in production you know that's always been one of the big things about supercomputing and the, and the group that builds the network is called signet and Sinnet has always been the best interoperability environment i've ever seen you know i've been doing signet since like 2003 off and on i took years off like kids are born and things like that but so it's multi-vendor And it's typically got an element of something experimental in it as well. And for a handful of years, it's been SDN off and on. Like you said, people talk about this stuff and they spin up these you know enclosed environments and they say it works, but I want to see it battle tested because realistically, I don't trust something until I can break it and then I know how to fix it. And the best way to do that is actually use it. So we've done that a handful of times now and it's been pretty successful to be quite honest
1: so the last time we spoke on this topic you were effectively misusing open flow to build a programmable patch panel out of layer 2 switch
0: what were you doing this time so this time was significantly more ambitious so what we did is we took a bunch of different vendors and a controller called Faucet, which is built and maintained out of a group in New Zealand called Faucet Foundation. They have to sort of go give you a little bit of information about what they do is they've built a production open flow controller that is expected to be used in real world environments. And they've got some fairly heavy hitter developers and members of the consortium to sort of ensure that that's the case. And they have a set of tests that they will run against hardware to make sure that it meets all of the requirements to actually do what they want to do with it. So anytime you want to run faucet against a piece of hardware, it's already been vetted, right? There's a hardware compatibility list that they have, and they've already vetted all this gear. So they know that all the features work. If even one of the features doesn't work, it doesn't make it onto the compatibility list. So what we did is we took those vendors and we said, here's the architecture that we want to build. Realistically, what we did is we created an enclave inside of Cynet. So inside of this larger architecture that was functionally its own autonomous system. And within that autonomous system, it was 100% open flow controlled. And that includes all the routing protocols, everything. So we programmed all the switches, we programmed all the routes, There's a piece of middleware that took a BGP peering to the rest of the network, converted all those routes into flow mods, pushed them into a P4 switch using the OpenFlow bridge and vice versa. It took all the routes that we had that we were originating and then converted them into actual routes and fed them back into the rest of the network. So we functionally NFV'd all of the network services as via OpenFlow and then programmed all the switches and all the ACLs and everything else via the OpenFlow 1.3 protocol.
1: Okay, let's start taking this apart.
0: Yeah, there's a lot there.
1: (laughs) You had your own autonomous system, and you were a leaf autonomous system, right? Correct. So effectively, internally, you used one controller or a controller cluster, which means that looking from the outside, you had just the connected interfaces. Yes. And then you redistributed connected interfaces into BGP and you took the BGP feed and redistributed that into static routes for the controller. Am I about right?
0: Yeah, that's functionally correct.
1: Yeah. Okay. And you're saying everything worked layer two, layer three all the flow mods, all the topology changes, everything?
0: Everything worked pretty much flawlessly. Our network was actually functioning before we had connectivity to the rest of everything else. And a big part of that was that we built it beforehand. So we tested all these things to make sure that they work. So we were able to just kind of put it together. But we didn't have you know, the rest of the environment to sort of balance it against. So it all kind of just worked with very minimal issue.
1: But it is still the hardcore traditional open flow, right? So control plane is on the controller. There is no offload to the switches. So the switches better be close to the controller. And if the controller fails, goodbye network, right?
0: So I believe that if the controller fails, the flow mods stay intact, although we didn't have that.
1: Oh, yeah, they do. But there is no ARP. There is no tracking topology changes. So, hmm. Right, right. Yes.
0: So the control plane is abstracted at that point. Yeah, you're right. And it, it does have a limit to distance, right? But OpenFlow was never really meant to be a WAN technology, even though a handful of us tried to force it in that Oh, really? <laughs> well, that wasn't how it was sold. Well, ask me how I figured that out. <laughs> no, I don't want to know. Yeah, no, you really don't. You know, the topology was all enclosed inside the convention center, right? Everything had direct fiber. We have a dedicated control plane network. So I think the takeaway from that is that the architecture was built optimally, right? We knew exactly what we needed and we didn't mince any words about it. This is exactly how it has to be built. And if it can't be built this way, then we have to figure out how to build it this way. Because as soon as you start carving away and making concessions on building a network like this, you're going to start to run into problems, right? Because it needs to be built in a specific way. And that's really the same for every network, except for in some traditional networks, they've been around long enough that protocols have been built to sort of take up some of that slack that gets put in when you don't build them in an optimal way. We've all seen networks that have been, that we were like, how in the hell is this actually working, right? And I think our goal was to know exactly what we were building and have it built exactly the way we wanted it to and giving it that It did exactly what we told it to.
1: So you did a bit of Linus Torvalds, right? You were the benevolent dictator. (laughs) No, no, no.
0: Well, maybe, but...
1: It's either my way or the highway.
0: Well, we didn't frame it that way, right? Because at the end of the day, everyone wants to be successful. So when you say, like, hey, we want to do this thing, here's the criteria... Do you think you can meet this criteria? If yes, then great. Let's go ahead and do that. And if you can't meet the criteria, then maybe this isn't the right tool for the job. Realistically speaking, what you need to build it is pretty low bar, right? You need a dedicated control plane network, which is a pretty nebulous thing, really, right? I have an L2 that the controller and all the management interfaces connect to. That can be any number of things, right? I need, you know, reasonable connectivity to the upstream, which you need for any network. I need a stable controller. And most importantly, I need hardware to do the forwarding plane that meets the criteria and does what it's supposed to do meets the standards, right? That's the hardest part. And that's always been the problem with OpenFlow. It's not the controllers. It's not the architectures, although that doesn't help. It's the hardware vendors. They say, well, we do like, These required things, but even though this thing's required, we don't do it. And so you're like, well, okay, well, this is off the table, right? And I ran into this the first time I did this network, right? We tried to do OpenFlow 1.3, and it was really early at that time. And a lot of the vendors said, yes, we support this. But when you start digging down under the covers, what you'd find is, well, it speaks OpenFlow 1.3, but the feature set is OpenFlow 1.0, or... It does OpenFlow 1.3, but it's missing a whole bunch of important pieces of that, like, I don't know, multi-table, which is really what you need to make OpenFlow work, right? Yes. And so if you don't have multi-table, you might as well just start over with something different. It's a bit like the bison crossing the river problem, isn't it? A lot
2: of the, I know a lot of the vendors, they didn't necessarily want to commit to silicon changes. And a lot of the merchant chips, they just corner off a little piece of TCAM and then they say, well, you know, we might speak to Nick's point, you know, OpenFlow 1.3, but we don't need multi-table because, you know, the TCAM resources, not just too complex and nobody's going to use it anyway, even though we've told everybody everybody's going to use it. So then the commitment isn't made. Interestingly, Nick, can we just go back to the stable controller statement you made earlier on? I've been chewing on this sure. and thinking about it. My experience with Open Daylight, and for everybody listening to this, I don't hate Open Daylight. I've just had my fingers burned so many times I don't have any fingers left for it. I'm going to play the political card and go, I've got no comment. Um, <laughs> so back to Fawcett. I've not played with it. But I've done a bit of reading up on it, actually. And I think actually you triggered that. I think I saw a tweet and I went off and had a bit of a read up. And I think actually that the choice of controller has got a lot to do with successful deployments. What I found with ODL was it was a nightmare to configure. Um, to get it stable with something else altogether. If you did any, any OAM where you disconnected something or removed a flow, you were really lucky if any of that kind of went well. So did you find faucet actually to be enabler of this success instead of pulling your hair out with ODL?
0: Frankly, faucet is a joy to work with. My home runs on a faucet network. My office has run on a faucet controlled network for like six months. It just kind of does what it's supposed to do. And I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One the people that are writing it are using it daily. Like they use it in production every day. So when they have a problem with it, it gets fixed immediately. They're also really open to bug reports. It's a small team, right? It's a very small team of very talented developers. And their goal is for this to be successful and and usable. So those two things I think are critically important. And another major feather in its cap is that the code base is light. I should clarify my statement about OpenDaylight. I don't hate it. That's what I built the first uh, <laughs> supercomputing open flow network on, and it it worked. But you're right; it's difficult to configure. I like to say, you know, that OpenDaylight has been sort of the Cisco 6500 of SDN controllers because it kind of does everything and badly. Well, <laughs> I like that reference. That's a really good reference, actually. It is so, right because the 6500 is prolific and it does everything. That's a really nice way but, of looking at that.
3: That was actually my issue with ODL is it seemed to be trying to do everything, but not well. There was so much going on. The, the lack of focus created a product
2: that I just kind of looked at and went, they don't seem to really do anything well. You said this as well. Like You said the code base is like the team know what they're doing, the team use it. With, with ODL, in my experience, it's been a load of academics going, I want to stand on stage and become a PTL, for the next thing that we do with the controller. And what my mental image of this is like a giant tower of Lego Jenga. And then somebody comes along and adds another piece of Jello on top. Um, anyway, I'm not, I don't want to hate on ODL. Like I so say, it's been a nice way to, I think, explore and, you know, kind of move the, the whole SDN thing forward. Back to Faucet. Is it still an application technically for Ryu?
0: Yes. It's built. Now, now bear in mind, I am a poor developer at best. So my terminology might not be exactly right, but from working on it a little bit, And using it every day, you know, Ryu is the back end and then faucet is the front end, I guess, for lack of a better way to describe it. You know, the developers may be cringing at my description of it, but that's how it looks to me with the goal being, you know, simple and purpose built, right? So it's meant to do the specific thing that it's doing and do it really well. And I think that's why it's successful. So at my office, here's an example of how lightweight it actually is. I get the streaming telemetry. And the open flow controller running and they're running on a Raspberry Pi 3 and the load is like 0.2 or wow. something. So, and that's running, you know, a uh, hundred and four, hundred one gig ports and four 10 gig ports. I mean, it's not a huge deployment by any stretch of the imagination, but it's definitely production and it definitely just works. And it is handling things like art
2: requests and, and resolution. It's not just kind of dealing with static only kind of flow mods.
0: No, it handles everything. It oh, handles cool. the ACLs. It handles, and it's soon to actually, we're going to NFV off our BGP feed like we did at supercomputing. So it'll be handling routes and things like that too.
2: One thing, I mean, you keep saying NFV. So I a lot of the kind of people I speak to on a daily basis have a different understanding of NFV to the way you're talking about it. Can you just clarify what you mean for the, for the listeners, please, Nick, when you say NFV?
0: Yeah, so when I say NFV, I mean I'm virtualizing a network function. And it's not really outside of the norm, right? So I'm running a software instance of a routing protocol, and then that's handling the front end of dealing with the routes. And then I'm doing something on the back end that's taking those routes and doing something else with them. In this case, probably run FRR or BIRD or something. I'd like to do FRR. That's one of the reasons I haven't done it yet, because we did it with BIRD at supercomputing, and there's some stuff that has to be changed, I think, to do it with FRR. But you know, we'll just run that. And that'll take our BGP feed in, and then the back end will convert those to flow mods and push them into the devices.
2: Thanks for that. I know a lot of people I speak to tend to think of this as, well, we've got a virtual firewall or a virtual IDP or something, and we just, you know, we stand a VM up and chuck them, you know, chuck them on a network. So it's a slight like kind of what sideways step of thinking about it. I just want to make sure that everything's nice and clear.
0: Yeah, yeah, no problem. I mean, for the record, I would also consider those things NFVs, although probably a little bit less letter of the law, but... <laughs> For the case of our, for our deployment, it'll be, you know, a daemons running a routing protocol that's then getting the information collected, changed into something else.
2: Nice. So
3: I'm just looking at the faucet website here, and there's a couple of things here. Is They actually, for control plane security, there is a fail standalone, which looks like it's probably just a forward to normal pipeline rule at the end of maybe. So it looks like they can, on to your point, if the controller disappears, there's both a fail secure and a fail standalone. And the other thing that I think is really interesting, and they call this out, which now makes me a lot less skeptical, is they're explicitly calling out a requirement for uh, flexible pipelines in the hardware, right? So they're explicitly saying out Broadcom OFDPA is not supported. So you're going to need a switch vendor that actually has flexible pipelines in the hardware. That was always the problem that I saw in the past is you would go through the pipeline in, in an OF standpoint, and you get to a point where you just couldn't do what you needed to do.
1: Okay, so let's focus on that. I wanted to ask a question along those same lines. So yeah, hooray for them for being so open. And well, they are brave saying, well, 95% of the data center switches don't apply. So Nick, what hardware were you able to use with Boset?
0: There's a hardware compatibility list that they've got, and there's a fair amount of vendors on there. Frankly, there was a few that I did not expect to see on there. So we had two Cisco boxes, we had a NovaFlow P4 switch that was our hundred gig router. We had some handful of Allied Telesis boxes that did a mix of a 100 and actually I should step back. This was all a 100 gig backbone with one and 10 gig access or customer ports, and then the router was however many hundred gig ports of P4 with the OpenFlow bridge. And so we had NovaFlow, Allied Telesis, Cisco. I've got it running on the Aruba boxes and an Alley Teleswis. So it works on all the ones that they have listed on there. For our deployment, we use the ones that I said. And frankly, I didn't expect to see Cisco on that list. When I when I first got involved with this quite a while ago, I was like, well, wait a minute. I thought Cisco basically said, we're not doing this anymore. But they sent engineers. they They sent significant gear. I mean, all the vendors really stepped up and came and sent people to make sure it was successful and everything, but the vendors that were there were, you know, were all pre-vetted by the test set that Faucet has, right? So we knew that they would work based on the fact that the Faucet team works heavily with all of the vendors on that list to make sure that all the compatibility is there. And I think that's another big key to the success of that particular controller, right, is they are deeply engaged with the vendors to make sure that all of the features work. Nice.
2: Nick, was there any commonality between any of the chipsets, that any of the devices that you used had? You know, like, was any of the barefoot chipset used, for instance? I'm just trying to figure out in terms of that kind of safety blanket feeling you get when you're working with hardware.
1: Yeah, that was probably the Novaflow box, right?
0: Yeah, the Novaflow was a barefoot chip. I'd have to go back and look and see what the other ones were. The Cisco one, I think, is probably Cisco's own, but...
1: Well, do keep in mind it's Catalyst 9000, not Nexus 9000. So it's the Cisco's ASIC that we covered with, oh, can't remember the name of the Ethernet guy. We did a podcast with him a long time ago about the ASICs they put in Catalyst 9000 and that thing has fully programmable pipeline.
2: Yeah. Interesting.
1: And I'm looking
3: as well on the Aruba. It's only the V3 ASIC, which is the newer 5400 Rs and those guys. So it's not the older 3500s that, you know, everybody's got one somewhere.
0: Yeah. So I have one of those in my basement and it, I, it doesn't work. But then in my office, we've got the, whatever the higher end model, a couple of the higher end models. I mean, they work just fine. So I have the diagram up here. Um, let's see. We've got the NoviFlow 32 by 100 gig with the Tofino ASIC. The controller was just a super micro, you know, rack mounted one U box. Nothing terribly.
1: By the way, one or two controllers? There was one controller. So that one goes
0: down, you're blind. Well, we had a backup box that had a backup of, you know, there was a regular backup that's made of the config files mm-hmm. off of the main controller, and then we had a backup device that was originally a like a test device for us that all the stuff was also pushed over to that we could have just turned up if we needed to. So technically, I guess we had to, but it wasn't like redundant like you would think, you know, the redundant supervisor kind of thing.
1: By the way, out of curiosity, do they support like redundant cluster setup or is it just one controller and if that one fails, you just turn on the second one?
0: So you can configure multiple controllers in the hardware. So as long as the configurations match and this is what i've been planning to do in our office is two controllers and then we have a master and a slave so you know basically have like a supervisor or you know or an re mastership where the primary configuration is just synchronized over to the secondary and that's exactly how i'm i'm envisioning our redundancy setup so we have script that gets kicked off that just rsyncs that over Anytime a change is made and that's your backup controller and both of them are configured on all the devices. Do you know during the show,
2: did you make any operational changes? So one of the things that always interests me is when you start to talk a platform of, you know, how well it holds together or was it you kind of deployed it once and left it to it?
0: Oh no. So one of the goals was that. So the other thing that I failed to mention was that the configurations were all automated. So okay. there's a database backend that. The supercomputing conference that Cynet has used for a number of years that has everything from patch panel, like you know these strands go to this patch panel, then goes to this, goes to this, to IP assignments, and everything is built from this DHCP scopes, physical fiber patching, routing instances, everything is built out of this database. So we had to build compatibility into that. So as a booth is provisioned, VLAN ID is assigned. IPv4 and IPv6, it's also dual-stacked, everything's dual-stacked, is assigned and then provisioned out, right? So we had to have compatibility with that. So one of the developers wrote a piece of middleware that would essentially convert, it would read the database. We knew which booths were ours, were connected to the faucet network, and then it would just programmatically build everything it needed and push it out into the controller. So yes, there was constant changes happening, but there was no person. Doing most of it. And that was the beautiful thing because, you know, as everyone else was scrambling around, we were just kind of sitting there going, yeah, you know, we've got a robot. Wow.
3: This needs more research because I'm looking at the on the high, the HA side, I'm looking at the website and it's high availability via hidden potency.
1: Yeah. I mean, I just found that and that proves they know what they're doing. And the no state sharing or
3: inter process communication between redundant faucet controllers is required. Exactly.
1: They have a fully scale out, no state sharing version of the software. I mean, have to figure out how they did this, particularly for interesting things like topology discovery, or maybe they're all running parallel topology discovery from all the controllers, but just the idea that this is how you do high availability is awesome. They know what they're doing.
0: If you dig down in the faucet webpage and you look at who's on the board, a faucet, you'll get a pretty good idea of the resources that are thrown at it. It's a significant project with some very, very heavy hitters standing behind it.
2: It gets, makes me kind of chuckle a little bit is there are no kind of big hoo about it. There are no cheerleaders out there, you know, cranking their bonbons or anything like that. It's just kind of like here we are and this is what we do and less, you know, no drama.
0: Yeah. So I've kind of taken it upon myself to be sort of an evangelist for this platform because The guys that write it are super cool. They're great to work with. It's no nonsense. It does what it says it does. It doesn't like, you know, there's no drama. Like you said, it just works. And I'm a big fan of simple and functional. And that's exactly what this is. Although simple, I think, I mean, it does complicated things, but it makes it very easy to do it. And it's magic. I wouldn't even call it magic. (laughs) I mean, it might appear magic, but... That's you know.
2: kind of what I meant. It was a bit of a tongue in cheek statement. I meant like it does something no, complex mean. in the background, but it does something, you know, you kind of maybe, you know, click a button, hit, hit, you know, hit return and it's done. You have to remember some of the listeners started in the last five years. So they don't remember the first time this was magic. Uh-huh. Oh,
3: that's point. <laughs> this is what is kind of almost shaking my head and I'm happy. And yet Shake still shaking my head is we were talking about this in what 2010? I've actually yeah. lost track. I had to go back and look at the ONF to
0: see what's the latest version of OpenFlow because it's been years since I've cared. My first OpenFlow lab setup was in 2009. And you know, I've been doing this a long time and I've seen the gritty underbelly of it. And I took a couple of years off because I just got disillusioned with the lack of available production stuff because I really wanted to do this stuff in production, right? Because I see a lot of value in extracting out the control plane for a number of different reasons, you know, especially in you know, a highly secure environment or other environment where you just need to be able to manage things in a sane way and a simple way, right? And there may be a lot of network elements. And that's one of the big draws for me for this is that I can set up a switch and I touch that switch one time, right? Or I do a ZTP to that switch and it has all the things on it that I need it to have. And I never have to touch it again unless I need to upload firmware to it. Like I just go to the controller to make all my changes. I get my tele- I get my live telemetry feed from every device and I can see in near real time what's going on, what MAC addresses are on what port. And we can talk about that in a second because we haven't even touched on the visualization stuff yet. And anytime I need to change anything, I just edit one file, I restart the process and I'm done. And it doesn't matter what device it is, right? It can be 30 devices or it can be one port. It's beautiful in its simplicity. Because I don't like logging in to do a bunch of repetitive crap. Sure, you can solve this problem in other ways, absolutely. But man, this way's pretty sexy, I got to admit.
3: Well, and I think we have solved it in other ways. But as you said, we've solved it through layers upon layers upon layers of abstractions, right? So it's, right. it's the Stephen Foskett stack of lies. <laughs> you know, if you guys remember that blog, it was one of my favorites. And this bypasses a lot of that. I love the fact that they yeah. bounded the scope to the point where they're actually making it workable and not trying to sell the dream of what really what, what we were looking at seven, eight years ago was, is the any switch anywhere, any time, any place in the world, you know, let's uh, not worry about things like the speed of light or laws of physics. We'll just, you know, we'll hand wave over those.
0: <laughs> yeah, let's see. <laughs> those of us that actually tried to do that, you know, we're like, hmm, there's a reason why this uh, people are so, going. Is this an
2: implicit admittance of the belief of marketing? I'm ashamed of you guys. It's terrible.
0: (laughs) People say, you know, it does this and this and this. Okay, show me or give me the gear and I'll show myself. Right. Yeah. And that's what I did. Every time I had the opportunity and I may have come off as irreverent, which may be a little bit true, but I want to see success. Like I want to see change. I want to see like things that are bucking the status quo and I want to help do it if I can. So that's one of the reasons that I've always gone out and said, okay, you have all this stuff and you say it all works in your marketing hype. Give it to me and let me do it. And let's make a thing out of it.
2: Yeah, Absolutely.
3: I remember back in the day, we did one where we put the controller in, in an interop in San Francisco and had the switches in New York, I think. And it actually, it worked. But then we had people going, oh, can I do that? And we're like, no, don't ever do this. This is such a horrible idea. We just wanted to see if it would work.
1: Oh, it's like the guy using OpenFlow to route voice calls to the nearest call center, right?
3: Yeah, that kind of stuff, yeah.
1: Wait, yeah. that happened? Yeah, yeah. And it was hugely popular and everyone was crazy about how with 100 lines of code or whatever it was, you can solve the load balancing problem the whole industry wasn't able to solve for the last 50 years. And no one realized that his average load was 9 calls a minute. <laughs> We were better than that. We were
3: getting up to, I think, twelve thousand DNS queries, and it was a really limited DNS application. But still, it was the kind of thing that I would never be able to, in good conscience, ever tell anybody to try that in production, not across those kind of distances. It's just a nightmare.
0: Yeah, that sounds good. Okay, so the other thing that Fawcett has that I think is really unique, um, and I find just fun to look at is that, you know, just based on how OpenFlow works, it has topological knowledge of basically everything that's happening on the network for the most part at, you know, at those layers. So, you know, it's learning Mac addresses, it's learning neighbor entries. It understands, you know, what kind of traffic is flowing over physical interfaces and stuff like that. And so one of the things that these guys did is that they said, well, we have all this information, let's visualize it. And so they wrote another piece of the faucet suite, I guess, for lack of a better description, called gauge. And what gauge is, it's a backend for receiving all of the open flow information and then turning that into a visualized output. So it uses Grafana and Prometheus to give you a, a really nice display of you know, traffic statistics, basically anything that you can pull out of an open flow message and then shove it into a displayable field. Right. So I can go and look at my interface and I can see, you know, how much traffic is on each port. And, you know, the ports are all labeled and things like that. So you can see what they are. I can go and I can see, you know, what MAC addresses have been learned and what port they're on, what VLAN they're on, things like that. And it all kind of displays in a really elegant little front end for, uh, for consumption. I've actually got mine displayed publicly on my website for my home. So if you look on there, there's a tab at the top. It'll show you like what the bandwidth statistics are for each port on my internal LAN. Nice. Uh, and nice. Again,
3: yeah. I'm shocked they're using Grafana, Prometheus, and InfluxDB. Again, they didn't build it all themselves.
0: No. Again, these guys use this. They literally use this every day for their production networks. So they use what works. Is there any graph output on this? So.
2: Is it just kind of pr- Prometheus and Grafana, or is there like, a well, almost like um what ODL does with the, with the graph output, so it shows you the nodes and connected nodes and topological information, or is that something we can mm-hmm. extract and do something with, maybe? It's all there, I guess, it's yeah, just extracting think, it and it, doing something with it.
0: Yeah, it's all there. There's a handful of canned JSON files that you can install you know, on your gauge install that give you things like the port statistics and MAC addresses and stuff like that. But basically anything that you can pull out of a OpenFlow message, you can build a dashboard for.
1: And they have API and you know what GraphGL is. So an afternoon project and you have your
0: network diagram. I might have to take yep. a look at that. Interesting fun. If you can get a switch that supports it, it's literally like 45 minutes and it's up and running. And oh, the other thing that's great is if you don't have hardware for uh, building the controller, They have a Raspberry Pi image. So you just download the image and it's all set up. You just have to configure it.
1: Yeah, the only problem I see is that the hardware support is pretty limited, but that's totally understandable. I managed to find, you know, the page where they describe the flow tables and they have like nine tables in the flow processing model. And there aren't that many switches out there that can actually do that.
0: I mean there's not that many switches out there that do multi-table, period.
1: Well, the really sad part is that what they are doing, their flow model, is almost exactly the same thing that I would be seeing if I would be attending Cisco Live presentations, where, you know, every year they have this a day in life of an IP packet presentations explaining how all the various switches do stuff, and they all do it the same way. And this is exactly what these guys are doing. It's just that the tables of regular switches are not exposed in the way that would be useful for us. Yep. Okay. So let's try to wrap this up. Nick, obviously you were happy and you are running this in production. Would you recommend that other people do the same? Absolutely. So is this something you would recommend someone else if he would come along saying, I need SDN?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that they should define their use case, right? You know, so if your use case is I have a campus or an office or a data center that I need to have some sort of uh better management, or I want to extract my control plane so that I can, you know, create a different kind of trust model of the network, then this is absolutely the right way to go. It works well. It has really stellar support, to be quite honest, for the small team that it uh, is made of. And it just does what it says it can do. You know, if you're trying to do a wide area network and have one controller in Chicago that controls everything in Europe and Hawaii and whatever, it's probably not the right tool for the job, right? But I think, you know, defining your use case is key. And if you have one that this model fits, this is absolutely a viable tool. Perfect. Thank
2: you. Chris, David, any last questions? No, this has been covered really well. This is quite exciting stuff. And um, I think one of the more positive SDN conversations I've been involved in for quite a while. It's like the first positive SDN conversation I had.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's nice to see something came out of all that time.
0: (laughs) These guys quietly plug away and then just get stuff done.
1: So, Nick? Thanks for this. It's been really uplifting to see that something actually works. <laughs> if people want to follow you or get in touch with you, how can they do that?
0: So I have a Twitter account. It's at forwardingplane. I have my website, which is forwardingplane.net. It's probably the best way.
3: Chris? At netmanchris on Twitter for networking related stuff. And yeah, that's probably the best way.
2: And David? Well, it's a new year, um, so naturally I'll change my Twitter handle again. Uh, it's at underscore ipengineer, and uh, for the blog, it is ipengineer.net. And you can
1: find me lurking around ipspace.net, and I'm still iOS hints on Twitter because I'm afraid to change my handle. And if you go to podcast.ipspace.net, you'll find all the old episodes, and we are pretty close to number 100. Thank you for being with us, and we'll be back.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Software Gone Wild. If you want to learn more about software-defined networking, network automation, and related topics, visit sdn.ipspace.net and explore our courses, books, webinars, and podcasts.